Our reading from God's holy word this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated. I do not think that it is possible for current imagination to picture very accurately the kind of natural laws and typical events that governed human existence before the fall of man. We are given a window, a brief window, into that world, and the things that we see are decidedly different than what we experience this day. To begin with, nothing died. Death was part of the curse, and prior to that, Nothing died. That is an impossibility for our current dispensation. In our current dispensation, life cannot exist without death taking place. It is a symbiotic relationship, but for things to be alive, things have to be dying. And I'm not even talking about the food chain. Even in human existence, your very existence is killing things that you might live. There is no ability to be alive now without death taking place. And everything that is alive today will die. But that wasn't the case. Before the, the curse, death wasn't part of anything. Men and animals talked. And this wasn't seen as abnormal or a miracle. 
you have the brief account of Eve, the first woman, talking to a serpent, and there is nothing recorded in that event where she is surprised the serpent is talking to her, or this is an odd occurrence. Today, men and animals don't talk, but this was before the fall of man. The world is totally, totally different, and they're talking. There was no sense of shame, and that was not connected to hardness of heart, much the opposite. Today, if someone has no sense of shame, uh, you uh, interpret from that, and rightly so, that this person has no knowledge of the human condition, his own condition. There is nothing that makes him ashamed because he's a very hard and sinful person, but Prior to the fall, we are told very specifically uh, there wasn't any shame until it happened. And then men had a sense of shame, then they covered their nakedness. But before the fall, they lived completely oblivious to the concept of shame or nakedness or any of that. Prior to the fall, there was work. Men wa- mankind was created so as to serve God as an under-shepherd of his creation. And the first thing he's told about is his work, but there is no frustration attached to that work. After the fall, you'll have thorns and thistles, and labor will be uh, very hard, and by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread. But prior to the fall, work wasn't like that at all. Work was uh, continually purposeful, and one could extrapolate joyful. There was purpose. Without everything being vanity of vanities, all is vanity, a chasing after the wind. When we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we intuitively understand what Solomon is saying pretty deeply. In our current existence, everything that we lay our hands to ultimately will come to nothing. Ultimately, every human life will be like it wasn't here. Uh, Nothing from the point of view of what you can see under the sun matters. That's the way of our world, but it wasn't the way of the world before the fall. Before the fall, everything lasted. Men were given a purpose. That purpose was positive and noble, and frustration did not exist in that world. Putting all these things together, try to imagine what it would be like. Can you imagine walking in that totally different world? There's also, by the way, no sinful impulse. Uh, We live day in and day out with a sinful nature that coerces us towards sin The most sanctified of men feel that the most. It's a part of the human existence. It's almost impossible to imagine what it would be like not to have that sinful impulse. But before the fall, it didn't exist. I can't imagine what that would be like, but one day I will experience it, and so will you. One day we will experience things like at the creation only better, But it's very, very, very different than our current experience. But all the things I am mentioning, truly, truly wondrous as they are, 
effectively pale into insignificance concerning the next one, and that is the scriptures assure us that before the fall, in the cool of the day, God would show up and walk with men. God would experientially, clearly, purposely walk alongside our forefathers, relate to them, fellowship with them as a man does his friend. Um, We relate to God. We call ourselves Christian, and inherent in that term is fellowship with God. But we don't really experience things quite like that at the moment. God walked with men. He would show up and ask how the day went. And he honestly, truly desired to fellowship with human beings without hostility, without separation, without any sort of brokenness, without any sin. God, our Creator, God, our Lord and Master, God who created us to be in covenant with Him, fellowshiped with us with no separation at all. It is in light of that that some of what we have been looking at in the midweek Bible study really jumps out and takes on a whole different level of meaning. We just passed through Exodus chapter 33, and in that chapter we read about Moses and the relationship Moses had with the Lord And there are some amazing verses there that kind of take us back to the garden, not all the way, but quite a way. Consider what we hear when you read these verses. Verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, I could be speaking face to face with my friend, and it could be like you talk to a friend, but I could be in a deep cave where literally no light shines and you cannot see the hand before your face, and I could still talk to my friend face to face without seeing him. The issue of this verse seems to be the the warmth, the fellowship, the significance of the relationship between Moses and uh, God. Because just a few verses later, in verse 14, uh, we read, verse 20, we read this. Um, But he, that is God, said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So, in light of the kind of relationship God had with our forefathers, Adam and Eve, um, these verses are remarkable. Moses cannot see the face of God. No man is able to see the face of God. Adam and Eve saw the face of God. He showed up and walked with them in the evening. But since then, that has not happened. 
But nevertheless, there is a warmth of relationship between God and his servant Moses that one reading the text simply has to deeply envy. Because there is a, a deep change that has happened between Exodus 33 and Genesis 1-3, to which is effectively summed up in the last verse of chapter 4 of Genesis. The last little line of it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That sounds positive, but it's really not. In chapter 3 of Genesis, you have the fall of man. Man falls into sin. He comes under God's curse. He spiritually dies. He becomes addicted to sin. And then in chapter 4, you begin to see the human condition morally, spiritually, and ethically begin to, to gravitate out of control. You have the first polygamy, which God never commanded. God never commands that, but it takes place in chapter 4. You have the first murder. Murder is unthinkable in the first three chapters, but it happens right at the beginning of the fourth chapter, and it's followed by another series of deaths, which are said to be in self-defense, but it's written in such a way you kind of wonder. Violence is beginning to, to uh, cross the earth. Men are becoming uh, barbarous. Sin is rising to the surface far more quickly than the reader would expect. And by the end of chapter 4, we have gone from the world where God walks with men, fellowships with men, lives among men happily and without uh, any division, to men now call upon the Lord. What does that refer to? Well, it refers to what the religious expression of man will be from that day till now. Men will pray to God... Men will seek God, there will be avenues to talk to God, but they will in no way be as warm and fellowshipping as what Adam and Eve knew. In chapter 4, God still comes to Cain and says, what have you done? But by the end of the chapter, God is not coming to men, is not walking with them, God's presence has pulled away from them so that they must seek God through a cloud of unknowing. The experience of God is far less. The fellowship with God is far less. The fellowship with God was broken in chapter 3. The fall of man happens. Man dies. Everything I described before comes to an end. And at the end of chapter 4... Uh, man so deeply needs reconciling to God that he's having to pray to a God he doesn't see. And this is absolutely tragic. This is absolutely the worst situation we could possibly be in. Fellowship broken is fellowship in need of restoration. And the entire rest of the Bible... Uh, 
effectively addresses that. God is separated from us. God is behind the cloud of unknowing. God is out of reach. We are left on our own. We are dead in sin. We are not warm and cuddly with God. That needs fixing. Years ago, I was part of a ministry called Crucio, which is no insignificant ministry. It's a ministry in the mainline churches with an attempt to draw them back to biblical faithfulness. And it, it takes place in all the mainline churches, effectively. It has different names depending upon which church it's part of. Uh, the Reformed Church in America was called Crucio. Uh, in the United Methodist Church, it's called Walk to Emmaus. I don't remember all the names, but it's all effectively the same ministry, and it's designed to effectively catechize adults, people who have lived in the church all their lives and don't know God, really are not really converted, bring the basic elementary truths of God to them, and it's actually quite laudatory. It, it's something that, that I'm glad I was part of. But it did bring me into contact with a lot of mainline people who were involved in it and people who were from very different traditions because you may be a Methodist and be part of Walk to Emmaus, but you're also very free to be part of Crucio and be involved in a Crucio weekend and that sort of thing. And in one particular ministry night, I was preaching right after a United Methodist minister who uh, I actually like, or liked, I've lost track of him, but he was a very nice guy. He was, um, he was kind of country, and he was, was very personable, and the way he would talk to you would be kind of like Grandpa talking to you. His sermon was kind of like Grandpa talking to you at the kitchen table, really trying to get you to listen, and you don't listen because you're a young whippersnapper, but he's going to talk to you anyway. And actually... It was very non-pretentious, and, and I liked him. But in this particular night, his sermon was truly, truly poor. Because he was preaching on creation, and he, go, he went back to before creation happened, and he said, you know, God existed before anything else. Nothing else was there. And God was lonely. God looked out at the vastness of nothingness that surrounded him, and God needed friends. God needed companions. And out of this heart of loneliness and emptiness, God said to himself, I think I'll make a world, and I'll put some people in it that I can relate to. It's warm, it's folksy, and it's absolutely incorrect because it's struck at the very essence of who God is. God is perfect and completely self-sufficient. In God's perfection, God does not need others to relate to. God was not sitting in the void going, I'm really lonely and I'm not complete. I just got to have a human race to talk to. And that's the way he presented it. And that is abhorrent. That, that is not the Christian God. But having said that, 
his sermon did point, in a wrong way, but did point to a spiritual truth, and that is, if fellowship with God is disrupted, fellowship with God needs to be reconciled, and ironically, the reason for it is because of God's perfection. Because God made the world, he said of it, this is very good. In the estate of it being very good, he walked with men in the cool of the garden. That's the way it was without sin when the the nature of God permeated creation. If there is a break of fellowship with God, God will restore it because God doesn't have needs, because God is perfect, because God lacks nothing, and that was the way it was when it was created. So in God's perfection, in God's righteousness, God himself is not going to leave that gap. His perfection will demand that perfection be restored. And so that is where we are in the account of the Bible, which I am describing right now. And if we were to walk through the rest of the scriptures, the issue of man's separation from God, his alienation from God, uh, and God's bringing man back to himself, that's going to be the focus of the scriptures. And as we look at what God does in different generations, it is God rebuilding that connection. If we were to look at Abraham, we would see God choosing a man out of all the men on earth to create a visible community of men dedicated to him. Ever since Genesis 4, where man is calling upon the Lord, he's separating, from God, he's separating from God, there has not been what we reform people called a visible church, that is, something that you can experience, see, touch, taste, whatever, uh, something separate from the rest of men. But in Genesis 12, God calls Abram and says, you and your seed will be the basis of, of my people. There will be a people called by my name. They will be holy to me. They will be in a relationship with me different than all other men are in. God is beginning to cross the gap. He has a chosen people now, and he also in Abraham chooses a holy land. In this place which I will give to you, Abraham, you will be able to worship me aright. You will be able to, in holiness, call upon me in a way that men are not able to call upon me. We will be in covenant together. You will be my people. This will be the place you are my people. The gap is being shrunk. Occasionally, the gap is widened. If we follow the trail of what happens... Uh, we will see the promised land taken from God's people. It was given to them so that they could worship God aright. They didn't do that, and so part of it is the promised land is yanked, and they're pulled out of it. If we go to the uh, book of Ezekiel, there's a long passage 
where the, the visible presence of God has dwelt among his people in the temple, and the Shekinah glory packs up and leaves. It leaves the temple, it moves out of the city, it ultimately moves away from Jerusalem in total. Uh, the gap narrowed becomes the gap wider. Uh, you also have God bringing them back to the promised land after the captivity. Uh, this, this gap kind of goes back and forth. But the, the effect of the fall continues, and God is ministering to man to, to walk among him in the cool of the day, to be in fellowship with God. And in Moses, something very, very significant happens. Moses brings this newly christened people of God into the Holy Land, and in Exodus, God commands Moses to make a tabernacle. It becomes the focus of many, many chapters in Exodus. It is a, a tent where the visible presence of God will manifest itself in the midst of God's people. In fact, those verses I read from Exodus where God spoke to Moses as a friend and such... That's actually in the context of the tabernacle being established. And it is said of the tabernacle something amazing, something wonderful, especially if you know the big, big problem of all of history is that men are alienated from God. Listen to what is said of the tabernacle. We are in Exodus chapter 29 and beginning with verse 44. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will dwell among them in this tabernacle. I will dwell among this chosen people of mine. I will live there with them and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. Fellowship broken needs to be fellowship reconciled. And now God is having Moses build a big old tent. It's called the tabernacle. Uh, ultimately, the physical temple, which will be on Mount Moriah, will be built on the pattern of this tabernacle. And God says, I'll use it as my house to dwell among you. I will be among you in a very real, experiential way. The Shekinah glory will be in your midst in this tabernacle. I will be there with you. It's Covenantal, God doesn't actually dwell in buildings made of human hands, whether they are made of stone and brick or whether they're made of animal hides. If we continue this theme of the tabernacle, if you go up to Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is actually talking about it. And this is what he says beginning in verse 47 of chapter 7. Solomon built him a house. And that's true. Solomon took the 
the tabernacle as his model, and he built a temple, which God wanted him to do. Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Stephen is merely quoting the prophet Isaiah, and both of them are effectively talking about the incompleteness of the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory is not the equivalent of God walking among men in the cool of the day. It is a step in that direction. It is partial, but it's not complete. But God did tabernacle among men. He lived in a tent among men. And if you wanted to experience God's presence, you knew the Shekinah glory was in that tent. And it was a lot better than God not being in that tent. He was among his people. Even if it was very partial, he was there. Now, why am I going on about this? Why did I start in creation and show you the separation of God and man and then walk you through most of biblical history with, with a focus on the tabernacle where the gap is partially closed? Why did I do that? Well, we are working our way through John's opening verses. This is my third sermon upon that text. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus Christ, whom we have seen as the Word of God and the light of God, John says of him these words. And the Word, and remember, the Word was with God and the Word was God, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He dwelt among us. The Word, which was divine, the light, which is divine because God is light, in him there is no darkness, dwelt among us. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And that is significant. He he was in a human body. He dwelt among us. And as much as I love the New King James translation, it kind of sort of lets us down at this point, because do you know what the actual Greek term under that is? He tabernacled among us. When John writes of the body of Jesus Christ, he reminds us of the separation between God and man. He reminds us that we are alienated from God, that if that remains, we are in a state of lostness. The ultimate tragedy of all human existence is that God is not among men, but God tabernacled among men in the Shekinah glory. He was among his people well God took on flesh, and in that 
flesh, in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, God tabernacled among men. When the children of Israel would uh, pack up and go, God would travel with them. Uh, the, the Shekinah glory, the cloud, the fire, God was with them. Um, when they would stay somewhere, God was with them. Well, John tells us the same sort of thing is happening wherever Jesus the Christ went, God went among men. He was tabernacling among us. The presence of God was with us, and it was far better far more relational, far more warm and cuddly, God now took on a human face and a human mouth and hands, and he related to us, he walked among us. The tabernacle of God was now the body of Jesus Christ, and he traveled among us. He tabernacled among us. It was the very presence of God. Now, it was a presence that was rejected by and large. You would think that if God dwelt among men, men would embrace that. They would, they would rejoice. But if you go back to the passages in Exodus that I read, uh, the context of that is Moses is up on the mountain receiving the pattern of the tabernacle, in chapter 32, which is the chapter before 33, which I read, uh, Aaron and the rest of the people of Israel are down at the base of the mountain making the golden calf. They are already breaking the covenant of works before it even has an expression from the mountain. They, they so are offensive to God's purposes that in chapter 33, uh, Moses is remonstrating with God because God said, you know, I promised I'd take you in the promised land, but you know what? Because of your sins and my holiness, I could break out and destroy you in a moment. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an angel in front of you to drive out your enemies. I'm going to take you in the promised land, but I won't go with you. It is the beginning of chapter 33, right after what happens with the golden calf, and the people of God absolutely are in mourning, and Moses begs God not to do that because the issue of the tragedy of human existence is God is not with us. We are created to be servants of God, to walk with God in the cool of the evening. That's what gives us purpose. That's what gives us meaning. And God says, you know, with this, this uh, golden calf, I'm just not going to go with you. And Moses throws himself on God and, and stands as a mediator for the people and says, please be with us. And God says, I'll be with you. I chose you. And Moses says, well, if you won't go with us, don't go with me either. Uh, I'm begging you for the people. Please be with us. And at the end of 34, spoiler alert, because that's what we're going to do this week, uh, God goes with the people. God listens to Moses. He, he mediates for the people. He stands in the gap for the people, and God 
condescends to go with them because of Moses' mediation. Because the issue is God being with men. We need God. God doesn't need us, but God's perfection demands the gap be closed, and we need God. And in Jesus of Nazareth, God tabernacled with men, but his own, much like they were at the base of the mountain, rejected that. Listen again to verse 10 and 11. He was in the world. The Word, the light, God himself. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. There is nothing in creation that God didn't make. And the world did not know him, even though he was in the world. He came to his own. Uh, Language experts tell me that part of the clause refers to all creation. Everything belongs to God because he created it. He came to his own. And then the next clause, and his own did not receive him, apparently is slightly different, and talks about the very called people of God, the visible church, He came into his own world, and he had a chosen people in it, and his own did not receive him. It is shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising, because this is the same people that was partying with the golden calf at the base of the mountain. But they reject the presence of God. And this is going to be one of the major themes in the Gospel of John. If you are an evangelical Christian, there is probably no book of the Bible that warms your heart more than the Gospel of John. Um, And rightly. And I'm an evangelical by certain definitions, and it warms my heart. If you are a liberal, you actually kind of hate the book of John. And one of the reasons why you say you hate it is because you say, well, you know... The Gospel of John is really kind of anti-Semitic. It puts the Jewish people in a very bad light. Well, it actually does. All the way through the Gospel of John, you see Jesus tabernacling with men, being God right in their midst, and the visible church, the descendants of Abraham of the flesh, the Jews, every time he's talking to the Jews, They are opposing him, they are fighting him, they are against him, they reject him. This is a major, major theme of the Gospel of John. And liberals say, hey, you know, this puts Jews in a bad light. Well, they did do that, and that's a bad light. They rejected God literally among them. And and by the way, you're not physically descended from Abraham, most of you. I'm not, I'm descended from somebody in Scotland. But I am a descendant of Abraham because I have the faith of Abraham. Uh, Being physically of the flesh of Abraham counts for nothing. And they reject God among them. In modern liberal translations of the Bible, there is now a uh, tradition where they won't translate the term in John as Jews. They will translate it as the Jewish leaders. Do you have any idea how much textual evidence for that reading there is? The answer is none. Not a bit. Not a single manuscript. 
But they want to say, well, John isn't, you know, anti-Jewish, it's, you know, anti-Jewish leadership. Well, problem with that is the word doesn't say that. But God tabernacled among men, and his very own people, by and large, rejected him being in their midst. But for those who did receive his presence, full fellowship with God was and is restored. It is restored so fully, it can be described as family. There is nothing so close and intimate as family. Nothing. Well, in the verses that come later, in verse 12 through 13, we read this concerning those who did receive God among them, tabernacling among them. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, or authority, you can translate it either way, gave him the right to become children of God. They have been separated from God. They are out of fellowship with God. They are alienated to God. But now God is tabernacling among them, and to them uh, they have the right to become the children of God. This happens because they believe. Belief is a gift of God. It is absolute faith in something. God gives them faith in Christ, they believe in his name, and uh, they were born who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When God tabernacles among us in Jesus Christ, everything that happened in Genesis, everything that took away from us that amazing world that I described is undone. God is among us again in Jesus Christ. He is tabernacling among us. If we receive him in that tabernacle, we are born again. It's a biblical term. We are born again. And having been born again, we're given the right to be children of God, and that takes place by faith, which elsewhere in Scripture, many, many times and places, is said to be a gift of God. We are in fellowship with God again. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound like an Easter sermon. We came for Easter, and really, I was kind of expecting to hear about Jesus coming up from the tomb rather than coming down from the realms of glory to men. That sounds kind of more like a Christmas sermon. Why is he continuing this series on Easter? Well, our story's not done yet. You see, um, normally on Easter, well, let, me, let me let you in on a secret. You'll probably hear this next Easter. Uh, when we get to Easter, I tend to preach certain very specific themes because they're very needed. The things that I preach usually are the reality of the resurrection. Jesus Christ, according to Scripture, really walked out of a physical tomb with a physical body that body had very different characteristics than when it went in. There's a glorification that's happened. But it's the real body of the real Jesus Christ, and he's really alive, and he really was dead. And this is not a metaphor. This is not a poetic image. 
there really was a man who really died and who really came out of the tomb, and he really is alive forevermore. And I combine that with uh, this is a supernatural world, and God does miracles, and God does whatever he wants to. And when God wants to raise the dead or heal the sick or give uh, light to the eyes of the blind, God's going to do what he's going to do, and those are real things. And also, Scripture is the truth. It's not just a poetic book that men wrote that have some neat ideas in it, but all of these things are realities. That tends to be what I preach on Easter because it's what the Christian church, by and large, needs to hear on Easter. Because for about 150 years, the liberal church has quietly but very really and very consistently, if you've listened to them, whispered, Jesus of Nazareth died and he's still dead. They don't believe Jesus rose from the grave. They don't believe a resurrection happened. They talk about a resurrection of hope. That three days after his crucifixion, Everybody just got a real upsurge in their emotions and decided Jesus is alive, and that's what they preach. And then they start talking about God is in the feeling you have in your gizzard when you see a waterfall at midnight. Uh, That is a blasphemy. Jesus Christ really, truly, supernaturally walked out of the tomb on that first Easter. Death was conquered, and he really rose up. And the church needs to declare that and celebrate that. Jesus Christ is risen today. Alleluia. We need to proclaim it. But in this particular case, I considered my audience, and I generally know most of you. Now, we end up with a number of visitors. I don't know you. So um, if you needed to hear what I just said, think about that a lot. But generally, I know my audience, and I know you know that. As, as Christians, you know Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and supernatural things happen and the Word of God is true. We had come up to the point in the Gospel of John where Jesus tabernacles among us, and in tabernacling among us, that is salvation. That Jesus Christ is with us, that is what's saving. Well, that's the upshot of Easter, Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb to continue to tabernacle among us, to be with us, to not leave us as orphans in this world. You see, he is king of his people. If we had gone at length through what God did in history to restore the gap, we could have looked at what God said to King David. I will establish for you a dynasty that will last forever. There will be the branch, our righteousness, who will never die. He will be the king forever. He will be divine. Well, actually, for us to be saved people, that has to happen. If Jesus Christ merely died for us as a substitution, there is no one to live for us to protect us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. If God is dead, then you're doomed. It doesn't really matter what happened on Golgotha. There is no hope in the world. But Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb to continue to tabernacle among us. 
And he said as much in the Gospel of John, which we will get to much later. In chapter 14, this is what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Beginning at verse 15 of John chapter 14, we read this. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I. He's talking about himself. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to send the Spirit. And when I begin this paragraph, I am talking about the Spirit as separate from me, and he is. I will ask the Father, who is separate from me, and he is, to send the Spirit. But when the Spirit is sent, I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. When the Holy Spirit comes, I'm coming. You are dwelling with God right now, he said. And when I send the Holy Spirit, I will come to you. The Godhead is an amazing mystery. There are three persons in the Godhead, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do not each make up a third of the Godhead. Rather, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit contain the fullness of God bodily in themselves. Together they are the one Godhead, and you don't have one of them separate from the rest of them. The Holy Spirit is sometimes in Scripture called the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus contains the fullness of the Godhead. When the Holy Spirit dwells among you and in you, Jesus Christ is tabernacling among us and in us. He has not left us to our own devices. He is walking with us. There is still some more to come. The world will be redeemed, and we will go back to a situation where there's no death and no frustration, and it's no longer vanity of vanities. It's no longer a chasing after the wind. We will go back to a place where even more so, God and Christ will be the light in the holy city because they will walk among men in the New Jerusalem. But for now, God has broken the breach and he tabernacles among us in Jesus because the Holy Spirit is among us and in us. And a dead Jesus who did not raise on Easter could not send the Spirit to you. And he could not be in you in the form of the Spirit. He's dead. But God chose to tabernacle among us in Jesus Christ. He continues to do that. The temple of God, which is really Jesus Christ among us, is right here, right now, and Easter is the reason for that. God didn't die. The tabernacle didn't burn down. God is tabernacling among us right now in Jesus Christ, and you are not, if you have faith in God, alienated from God. Many millions of people have walked, lived, and died on this earth, and they have done so in alienation from God. They have gone to a Christless hell, but it's Easter, and you have faith in Jesus Christ, 
And God is reconciled to you. He is with you. Happy Easter.